Hey, everybody. It's Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report. You're listening to The Odd Years, a political podcast designed for the off years, literally the odd-numbered years where there are no scheduled federal elections. Last week, I talked with Democratic pollster Anna Greenberg. Anna is a senior partner of the polling firm GQR and in 2022, polled for a number of high-profile House and Senate campaigns, including Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona, Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado, and Congresswoman Kim Schreier from suburban Seattle. Anna and I started with a conversation about why some polls, including some by Democrats, overestimated Republican strength in 2022 and the role abortion and the Dobbs decision played for Democrats' successes last year. We also talked 2024 and why she thinks, regardless of who the GOP nominee may be, the Republican Party remains defined by Trump. And finally, we talk about the issue of crime and how, in Anna's words, Democrats are, quote, too scared of the left and they're too scared of the right. Here's our conversation. So, Anna, let's let's start in 2022. Take a look back for a second. You weren't surprised by Democrats stronger than expected showing. And tell us why that is. Um, Well, I wasn't, I think, for probably three reasons. The first, of course, was the Dobbs decision. You can't imagine a more sort of, you know, shock to a system that, you know, would upend. It's hard to imagine something being as as impactful as Dobbs. And so the idea that we wouldn't update our thinking about what was going to happen in 2022 in response to Dobbs feels like madness. But there were other real world indicators beyond polling post Dobbs that suggested democratic engagement. And so the, the first was you know, we saw a big bump in voter registration among younger people, especially younger women. We had a series of special elections where Democrats overperformed partisanship. We had the Kansas initiative around abortion, which didn't just, you know, wasn't just defeated, but overwhelmingly defeated with incredibly high turnout. And one of the things that, I mean, I'm a pollster, right? And so I tend to think that the polling data is one of the most important things to consider. But you know, there are always are other things you can look at. In the lead up to 2018, we saw very similar dynamics where Democrats were overperforming in specials, high turnout in primaries, lots of Democratic challengers outraising incumbents. We saw the same things post Dobbs. And so it just stood to reason that Democrats were going to be engaged. And that was especially true in states where there were abortion bans. And you saw that Democrats in Arizona, for example, or Georgia or Wisconsin or places like that were even more engaged than, say, places like New Jersey or New York, where, you know, abortion rights were secure. The final thing I would just say is that the fundamentals matter. Um, and we don't see a lot of change from cycle to cycle among demographic groups. Absolutely Hispanic voters in certain parts of the state in 2020 underperformed for Democrats. But generally speaking, we know how voters behave. And so when polls are coming in and people are reading it to be very conservative in anticipation of a wave, you start seeing the underlying data behaving weirdly. So I'll just give you an example. Yeah. I was shown a poll in the race for Senate in Arizona. And in that data, Mark Kelly was losing, which I did Mark Kelly's poll and he was never losing. And so when you look underneath the hood, you could see he was only getting like 51% of Hispanic voters, which doesn't make any sense at all, um, given that he did extremely well with Hispanic voters in 2020. And Blake Masters couldn't be a more off-putting candidate in general, but certainly to Hispanic voters. 
And so I just think for all of those reasons, understanding the shock of Dobbs, looking at the non-polling indicators of democratic energy, and then looking at the internals of these polls that were clearly too conservative and just things basically not making sense. Hmm. You know, somehow the fundamentals don't went out the window because people were so worried about getting it wrong. Um, so that, that's a long-winded answer, think- but that's why. Okay, so let's break this down just a little bit. We had, it seemed, two big factors beyond Dobbs. So you have that as, you're right, a shakeup to the fundamentals. We also had a 40-year high inflation. And Mm -hmm. we had something that, again, most people under the age of 50 had not seen before. Um, So wasn't so much of it trying to balance out which of these things was going to be the more salient in this. And that at the end of the day, a bunch of pollsters, including a lot of Democrats, were telling us abortion rights only took us so far. It's the economy that's going to ultimately matter in the end. Why didn't you see that? Because our politics post-Trump are different. Mm. And partisan polarization and ideological battles matter more than the economy. And I don't know if we'll go back to a world where, you know, performance in the, what is it, the first quarter of the election year, whatever the quarter is that says if you're a recession in that quarter, you're going to lose. We go back to a time when economic indicators were predictors of electoral outcomes, but we're not in that moment right now. And I think the existential threat of Republicans to Democrats, as it was embodied in Dobbs, but it wasn't just Dobbs, um, you know, drove turnout, drove voting Democratic, drove independent women, what I mean, the gender gap with independence is huge, independent women voting heavily Democratic. And those mattered more. Being scared about what was going to happen to the country for the folks who voted Democratic mattered more than inflation. On the abortion issue, I want to ask you this question looking at it from two ways. The first is, as we were just talking about, there seemed to be a split, not just in the sort of broader political class, but even within Democratic ranks about the salience of abortion versus the economy with Bernie Sanders and some folks from that camp saying Democrats screwed up before the election. Democrats screwed up. They should be talking more about the economy. But I'm also so I'm wondering if you could also address that looking through the lens of gender and specifically if you noticed among your peers in the consultancy world on the Democratic side, if women who still, there are still not enough women uh, who are partners and principals in consulting firms, pollsters, media consults, et cetera. Right. If women viewed this differently than their male counterparts. Absolutely. But let me start hmm. with the first part of your question, which is yeah. a lot of the commentary from Washington about what Democrats were doing wrong in their campaigns had no relationship to what was actually happening in campaigns. We ran ads on the economy. We ran ads on crime in all of my races. And if I had to hear one more person say, you know, Democrats aren't talking about the economy when we have chips and supply chain and, you know, infrastructure. I'll go back to Mark Kelly. Every third ad is on the economy. And so the first thing is that a lot of the commentary, literally, I think people who are safe in their seats and not up in cycle, Mm -hmm literally don't know what's on TV or what's going in the mail or what's being said at the doors in races. Or they're not they're not realizing that your campaign is actually spending most of its money talking about those issues, but outside right. groups may be driving 
the abortion sure. or they're ru- running ads about other stuff. It's not you sure. and your campaign. Right. Sure. But that's very complicated because, yeah. as you know, there are signals sent to outside groups about what you would like to see on TV. And so that I actually think that the IE spending was pretty on the mark, too. Mm-hmm. But okay. um, but leaving that aside, I do think there was the the notion I do believe that sexism and misogyny are a big part of underestimating the role of abortion. And some of it is that Democrats have been trained for years that they shouldn't talk about it, even though the majority of this country is pro-choice and has been since 1972. There's been little dips here and there, but, you know, fundamentally, somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of people in this country are pro-choice and have been since uh, since Roe v. Wade was decided. And so there's this lack of confidence that Democrats have had, and they found ways of talking about it to sort of soften it up, reproductive health care, right? Using those kinds of phrases, abortion care, you know, using these kinds of phrases when, in fact, most people just think women should have the right to control their own body. And they certainly think that whether it's an issue of a woman's health or, um, you know, the whether or not the fetus can survive outside of the womb. But, you know, there are rape, incest. You know, when I did focus groups, actually pre-dobs, because it turns out stuff in Texas was pretty well known nationally. I was kind of shocked that people bring up the Texas law from earlier in the year before pre-dobs. But when you did the focus groups with, you know, obviously most of the focus groups I do are with kind of independent, lean conservative folks, because that's who we're trying to get. And the women in these groups could have been clearer. They're taking away women's rights trying to control my body. And these were feminists and some of these were Trump voters. And so I think that a lot of, you know, and I'll say this, a lot of male consultants are used to not talking about abortion, to using it only in very targeted ways. We'll do a direct mail piece to a suburban college educated woman, but she must be the only person who, the only person who cares about it. Right. And so that, in my experience, the beginning of Dobbs was very much the attitude is, well, maybe we can use it in these limited ways, as opposed to it being the earthquake that it was. Now, to be fair, I think by September, everybody knew, you know, there might have been people saying we shouldn't be. But in the campaign world, everybody knew it was all abortion all the time. And there was very little pushback. But when Dobbs first came down, there was a lot of skepticism. And just as a human being, I'm like, guys, this is like huge. This is everything. You know, this is how you start taking away women's rights. You know, I mean, why do you think people are going to be like, yeah, it's just this little niche issue. I don't understand it at all. I was surprised too, and maybe shouldn't have been, listening in on focus groups. And again, this was usually women, but sometimes men too, who would say things like, well, you know, I'm pro-life, but, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't think that meant no one could have an abortion. I meant it for me. I don't think it's right. I morally disagree with it, but I wasn't asking for people to just like get rid of Roe v. Wade. And, and so we mis sort of yeah. interpreted as well what it meant to be people who are self-identifying as pro-life. We thought we knew what that meant, but actually didn't. Yeah. And in fact, there was some really good research that we did with NARAL a number of years ago where we, I'm sure you saw this, had this 70 percent number. Yeah. Is that there are people who are pro-choice under all or most circumstances and there were people who said, I'm personally opposed but I think other people should have that right. And it was 70%. Guess what? That's actually, the, there are very few people who say no, we shall have, should be able to have abortions. And even fewer who say cases of rape, incest, life of the mother, you know, uh, non-viable fetus. So I, that's exactly right. So when we talk about polling now going forward, one of the challenges that you have 
and I'd love for you to dig into this for a second and help our listeners understand this, is uh, creating basically a model, what you think the turnout is going to look like, who's going to come out and vote. And can you talk to us a little bit as you think ahead to 2024, based on what you've learned from, sure, as you said, this era in the post-Trump era that we're yeah. in, or the I don't know what we're in. Are we still in the Trump in, era, the post-Trump I, I, era? I think we're definitely still in the Trump era. As long as Trump is running for president and, you know, the other people running with very few exceptions will not say his name or, you know, critique him, uh, we're in the Trump era. Uh, it's possible he loses the primary and we have a different person, but uh, we're still in the Trump era. <laughs> Absolutely. Really? Th- you do think so? Even mm-hmm. if there is a... So we'll just throw out Ron DeSantis. Um, just being different from Donald Trump is not enough to maybe change the constituencies of the two parties. Trump wasn't just a person who mobilized a set of people. He was a distillation and almost a cult-like figure of a certain set of Republicans who came to dominate the party. And now the conflict between the parties is about like existential, you know, issues. It's not about I'm for lower taxes, I'm for higher taxes. And as long as that is true of the Republican Party, which everybody from McCarthy, who's given the January 6th footage to Tucker Carlson, to, you know, Sununu saying all will for Trump if he's the nominee, as long as that's where, where the Republican Party is, there'll be a set of people mobilized to support them and also a reaction from Democrats who are mobilized to fight that. And so that happened in 2022. Absolutely happened in 2022, even though Trump wasn't on the ballot. Um, even though there were some things that happened like Mar-a-Lago that kind of inserted him into the yeah, January 6th hearings. January and... 6th, exactly. But the point is, is Trump, it's more Trumpism than Trump himself. I think Democrats are terrified of the Republicans and it motivates them to come out to vote. And Dobbs, you know, was a really, I mean, that's part of the reason it wasn't just that Dobbs was taking away women's rights, self-determination, but it was like the best example of how scary and dangerous, um, for them, that, you know, I'm a Democrat. So in my view, you know, Republicans are, and I, I don't see that abating. Um, but let's go back to your polling question. Yeah. Shall we? Yeah. So what's this great? So what the Trump era means is high turnout. Yeah. And yeah, we've yeah, now yeah. had three elections with high turnout. We also had high turnout in the off year in Virginia and New Jersey, if you compared 2021 to 2017. So that's four cycles of high turnout. Uh, when you think about devising, developing a poll, you have to have a model of what you think the electorate is going to look like. And that involves a variety of assumptions about who's going to come out to vote. Um, we do not have crystal balls. We can't predict who's going to come out to vote. And so the polling misses. Um, you know, even though a lot of people talked about shy Trump voters and not taking surveys, the truth is a lot of them were not in the surveys in the first place. So as an example, there are people who did not vote in 2012. You know, it was an easy reelect for Obama who got motivated to vote for Trump in 2016. They weren't new voters. They weren't 18. They weren't people who just, you know, voted for the first time. But when we think about who might vote in presidential elections, if you were eligible and hadn't voted in the past, we have no reason to believe you're going to vote in the future. So in both 2016 
and in 2020, Trump brought new people into the electorate. That's right. And they were different. Like it was much more like a white blue collar thing in, in 2016 and they voted again. But then you had a huge number of new Hispanic voters in 2020. And so the polls were wrong in part because new people came out to vote. And so I don't expect anyone to feel sorry for pollsters, but, but I do feel like there should be a little bit of sympathy around, you know, nobody knew that Trump was going to find a million new voters in 2020. And I don't know why anyone thinks pollsters know a million new people. So some of the polling misses were missing people in the first place. And you have to know who you're calling or who you're sending an email to, or you're sending a text to. It's got to be an identifiable person. And if you don't know they're going to vote, you don't ever contact them in the first place. Are you under the belief that many pollsters were after 2020 that even though the sample looked correct, right? You say, mm -hmm. oh, this many Republicans, this many white voters without a college degree, this many rural voters, et cetera, while their profile looked like a Trump voter, the mm -hmm. kinds of people who were responding to surveys from those areas were more likely to be skeptical of Trump than they were the hardcore supporters of Donald sure. Trump. In other words, they weren't shy. It wasn't that they were lying to you guys. Mm -hmm. It's that, as you said, you didn't find them, not because you weren't looking for them, but because you thought you found them, but you didn't. Right. They were the wrong. They We found people who were going to vote. We just didn't find, you know, all of them. You know, I have never seen real definitive evidence that the kinds of Republicans in our surveys were the less conservative Republicans. Mm. And therefore, we underestimated Trump's support. Mm. And I think that the way I work um, is, first of all, to make sure I have the right number of Republicans in my survey in the first place, which is to say, I know it has to be, say, 35% registered Republicans while I'm calling. If it's coming in 20%, I will say to my calling house, you're only calling Republicans. Now, that's expensive. Right? And so it's much easier just to let it fall out how it falls out and wait it. But if you wait unrepresentative data, it is still unrepresentative data. The only thing that waiting fixes, and I don't know if your listeners know what waiting is, but it's adjusting the sample after you finish to make sure you're accurately reflecting the demographic and kind of political, what we know, political is a little harder, but certainly the demographics of the population that you're surveying. And so if we don't have enough registered Republicans, we would just wait it up. But if you wait up unrepresentative data, right. it doesn't make it. It's going to make it. Yeah. It yeah. actually highlights that, actually make, that, highlights yes. that <laughs> problem. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it may or may not be true, but how do you know? Like, what are you going to wait on? You're going to make them, are you going to wait them and make them on the self-reported ideology more conservative? Or one tactic is to ask your affect towards the NRA, something like that, and then wait people to make them like the NRA more. But like, how do you really know? These are all fake. Not fake. These are also it's a public opinion is a social construct. People don't walk around with opinions right. in their head. And so when you start doing that, you're making you really are imposing your own ideas of what you think they might think. And you don't want to do that. Right. So it seems that one of the challenges then for 2024, we kind of get back to the same scenario where, look, we know, as you pointed out, there is a constituency out there for Democrats that has come out. 2018, 2020, and 2022 to vote against Donald Trump and what yes. or what he stands for. Will that same constituency show up 
we talked about if Trump's not on the ballot or Mm -hmm. two, if there is, well, let's just say without Trump on the ballot, you, you still think he will, the, the, the promise or the prospect of this Republican party sort of built in his image is enough to get those voters out. I don't know, but I think so. And Mm -hmm. Some of it, if you look back on 2022 and you look at turnout, turnout was highest in competitive states and districts, obviously, but also in states that had the same kind of dynamic, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin. I mean, there were competitive congressional races in New Jersey and New York that had lower turnout than 2018. And then you had statewide races and congressionals in places like Arizona where they met 2018 which was mind-blowingly high. (laughs) And so in 2022, we're seeing places where Trump himself wasn't on the ballot, but Trumpism was, and you saw a very high turnout. I know Brian Kemp won, but obviously Warnock was re-elected and Mark Kelly was re-elected and Peppers was re-elected. And we could talk about the Wisconsin Senate. I think that was complicated. Um, But there was a lot of evidence in the places where you've had that kind of existential battle. Um, Turnout was quite high. I don't, there's, we haven't even talked about Biden, so. Yeah, that's where, like, well, I, that's right. where I was going next. Is. <laughs> so I don't know in that sense what happens, but if the idea of Trumpism and that kind of existential threat that it poses to many people, um, and, and then I just want to say one more thing about it. There's a lot of anger on the Republican side, and that angry narrative doesn't seem to be changing. And so if you listen to Ron DeSantis, who is obviously much more polished than Trump and isn't at least at the moment, trying to subvert democracy. <laughs> He's not autocrat. Um, you know, that speech from Trump at CPAC was pretty darn scary. But he's very angry, very angry about transgender people, very angry about CRT. He's very angry at Disney. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, and a lot of the Republican advertising in 2022 was, we're all going to die, apocalypse. And they, I still feel that from them. And that's very off-putting. And so I just, I, they don't seem to be changing that. And there's like literally, for my candidates, I said, we have to have at least one track of positive on TV because what's coming from the Republicans is so unrelentingly pessimistic, right? You know, right. we want people to vote for us because they think we're not. Like we want America, we, you know, we're into America doing better and have some ideas about that. And you know what I mean? So I think the dynamic will still be there, but. There's a lot of there's known unknowns and unknown unknowns to quote Donald. Donald I know it's still my favorite, Anna. That is still one of my favorite quotes. Mm-hmm. That Donald Trump so, quote because it's, it's, it's so perfect for politics. There literally totally. are known <laughs> unknowns, right? We know that this is going to be an issue, but I don't know how it's going <laughs> to play out. So exactly. Um, let's talk about President Biden um, okay. and your perception about uh, first, uh, these polls that we've seen uh, where you have Democratic voters saying, yeah, I, I like Joe Biden. I, I think he's doing a good job. Uh, do you, Then the next question is, would you like to see him run for re-election? No, I'd like to see someone else. Help us understand what you think Democratic voters are saying there. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I think that when Joe Biden was elected in 2020, People coalesced around him because I think they believed quite accurately he was probably the only person who could beat Donald Trump. Right. And that's a totally legitimate reason to vote for someone for your nominee for president. I bias. I think he's been a really good president. 
in terms of just overall accomplishments and the ability to just, I mean, he, he's gotten more done than Obama did in six, eight years and three. So I just, I think, or two and a half. So I think he's been a good president. But I think that nobody's immune from the narrative that is spread through social media and the dark web about dementia and all that sort of thing. I mean, he doesn't have dementia. He can, you can listen to him talk. He trips over himself. He's always done that. Um, but at any rate, no one's immune from that. People think everyone's too old, right? And that's fine. But even among Democratic-leaning focus groups Mm -hmm. that I listen to, what Mm -hmm. comes up is all the same things you mentioned. They're not saying he has dementia, but they are saying, 82. I just, and he seems slower and totally. he walked slower and his face looks older and, you know, it's a... It's it's there. So is that what's driving most of this? And what does it It, mean? I believe it is driving what because there isn't anything he's done substantively or in policy terms that anybody in the Democratic Party disagrees with. So this is very much about that impression they have of him being too old. And what I was going to say is, if he's running, short of some medical event, he's going to be the nominee. Democrats are going to rally. And so I think that Republicans are, when I hear Republicans talk about, well, they don't really want him. It's like, you know what? Especially if he's running against Trump or DeSantis or the existential threat of Trumpism, people are going to vote for him enthusiastically. So I don't worry um, as much about, about that. I worry more about the unknown unknowns, right? So for example, let's say China decides to give weapons to Russia and we're in World War III. Right. I don't know how that's going to you know, right. I, I please um, don't let that happen. But I would yes. like that not to happen. <laughs> Say at the beginning of next year, we finally are in a recession. Right. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that would affect, I think, independent voters uh, and their support for Biden. But I don't see Democrats, uh, you know, I, they will be enthusiastic supporters of him if he is the Democratic nominee. So let's um, then talk about what you think the campaign should be leaning into as they're going into 2024 or whether it's the Biden campaign or outside groups is this message of making sure that voters know regardless who's on the top of the ballot the Republican nominee is going to just be an extension of Trumpism and if so when does that branding Mm -hmm. need to start happening yeah well, I mean, one of the benefits that Biden has anyway, if we think about this in presidential terms, is at the moment he doesn't have a primary. Right. And so you kind of want to let them fight it out with each other. Right. Um, that's going to set kind of the, the narratives for the Republicans. And so far, it's been very gentle. <laughs> I mean, at least not not on Trump's part, but, you know, everyone keeps commenting on the fact that no Republican says the word, you know, Trump. Right. So. At some point, they're all going to like lay down and let him be the nominee or something's going to happen where he's challenged. So there's a certain part of, you know, for Democrats is to stand back and let them do that. The other thing I think, and I don't have a good answer on this, is there's something going on with, think about DeSantis, think about what he, his legislative agenda, and it's not just, um, you know, sex education and transgender and wolf capitalism. You know, it's also... I'm sure you, as a journalist, saw all the stuff he wants to do around uh, free speech and and um, lowering the threshold for defamation. And how do we talk about that? You know, and because most people are worried about what's happening day to day, right? And so their day to day lives, like how much does it cost for a tank of gas? But this, to me, is there's potentially something very powerful 
in an overall narrative about what this is, which, you know, ultimately, if you listen to Trump, it's, you know, it's autocracy, it's fascism. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not what our country's about. And that plus the kind of isolationist America first, I think is very, uh, it, it's at least not in a way that anyone could articulate, but it's part of why so many were scared of Republicans. But we haven't figured out a good way to even talk about January 6th. So I would like someone to hire me. <laughs> to, this is a pitch uh, to anyone. Yeah. So really dig into this stuff because there's something there that we have not been able to really articulate in a way outside of very progressive circles, but I think is a quite powerful contrast. And it may be the right contrast with DeSantis. Well, that was the argument that President Biden made in 2022 was that democracy was on the ballot. We talked a lot about Dobbs. He, of course, mentioned that, too. But really, his emphasis was as much about January 6th and about protecting democracy than anything else. And as we discussed, there was some disagreement even within Democratic circles about whether was. that was the right, the whether that was the right message. Uh, he but then it showed the up in the exit polls, though. That's right. Exactly. In two post-election polls. Yeah. And we asked open-ended, why did you vote Democratic? And democracy was, it was abortion and democracy. And not, not one of my campaigns ran an ad on democracy. You know, people figured it out. This also seems to me that the Dobbs decision is part and parcel about that, right? Because if your concern is things are getting rolled back, my rights are getting rolled back, Dobbs fits into that model, right? Which is whether it's about the issue, the issue of abortion is one thing, but it's if, and I would hear this in focus groups as well. Well, it starts with abortion and then it's going to go right down the list, gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and you didn't have to say anything about January 6th because it was everywhere um, in the media. But, but people, I mean, as you say, Biden was criticized for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, people who voted Democratic sort of got it uh, on their own. Um, and, you know, people got Dobbs, you know, pretty quickly on their own. You know what I mean? Like, we all think we're so smart, you know, in Washington, you know, met giving message advice to campaigns. But voters sometimes just kind of get it. Uh, and they certainly, again, voters who vote Democratic kind of. Kind of got it. But I think it's I think you're right. I think it is tied up in Dobbs. But it's also this there's like, you know, there's self-determination and privacy. And, you know, I think, you know, accusing parents who give gender affirming care of child abuse, um, you know, attacking children. Um, you know, there's just all of this stuff is very ugly. Right. And, and, and certainly overturning marriage equality, which is what I think is coming, will be coming next in some places and attempt to do that. Um, and I know given how the court repudiated Roe. And even though Alito said they're not, explicitly said we're not going over marriage equality, Claire Sum was like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, and so I do think this is a harder argument to make, but it is part and parcel of kind of authoritarianism is, you know, control of corporations, ironically, right? That's what the going after woke capitalism is actually the government trying to control what corporations, private companies do. And then you're also trying to control, control private individuals. And this is very undemocratic. And so, again, I don't have the words for how to talk about this with voters who are worried about, you know, how much the prescription drugs cost. And that's legitimate. But I think that's something we need to figure out. 
Final question is about another issue that comes up a lot when we hear talk about Democrats and things that they should be thinking a lot more about, which is uh, as a uh, as a worry, which is the crime issue. And that after the 2020 election, you had a lot of Democrats who said, hey, we got defined by the defund the police rhetoric and we better watch out because we're going to lose elections if we're seen as the party that's soft on crime. And now, uh, as we speak, there's a debate going on uh, in Congress about voting against a D.C. crime bill with it looks like many Democratic senators joining Republicans on this. Talk to us about the crime issue and how sure. you think it plays. Sure. I mean, I think this is I think this is a really, really important conversation. And I think Democrats have got it wrong, but not in the way that I think the conventional wisdom would suggest. And I think the reason Democrats have got it wrong is they're too scared of the left and they're too scared of the right. When in fact, most Democrats, including the president, represent the absolute mainstream middle of the road opinion about crime, which is one, people deserve public safety. And two, people deserve the people of color not to be discriminated against and killed by police. You can hold both those at views at the same time. They're not in contradiction with each other, right? And so when I say they're too scared of the left, you know, there's a very, very small number of people, a very small number of activists who coined defund. It is not something that is ever talked about outside of that very small group of activists. The Republicans and the media, as they're, that have been complicit, have suggested that this is like a Democratic position. I mean, the president said, fund the police, remember? And so I just don't think Democrats should worry about talking about, you know, supporting police, right? I just don't. Um, and I, I think that they will get blowback on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. But when it comes to voters, the people actually determine election outcomes, that's where most people are. And then are too scared of the right because, you know, when you talk to people about crime, they don't say the number one reason crime's gone up is because Democrats are defunding the police. That's not what they say. <laughs> now, they may say, there, I'm worried that some police won't go to certain neighborhoods or won't really enforce the law because they're worried about complaints. You hear a little bit of that, but you also hear poverty, the proliferation of guns, a lot of discussion of bad parents, <laughs> bring back spanking and corporal punishment, I hear often. Um, you know, bad schools. It's multi-causal and people know it. And right. so when you have a very simplistic that says Democrats are anti-police, one from that side of crime, People are like, yeah, that's not really how I think about crime. And I'll give you an example, which is New Mexico. I work for the governor of New Mexico. Crime is very bad in New Mexico, especially Albuquerque, legitimately, and, and has been for a long time. I mean, apparently everyone's car gets stolen in Mexico. Like, this is a very common thing that everybody's car gets stolen. They ran 25 ads on crime against her. We ran four crime response ads, four to 25. And... The crime ads never affected her standing one bit. And when we did, you know, literally her share of the vote and her favorability and job performance didn't move the entire election cycle, which is also a little humbling when you work with campaigns and like nothing changes no matter what you do. At least at least when you're on the winning side, it's fine. When you're on the losing side and nothing changes, it's pretty frustrating after spending millions and millions of dollars. Um, but nothing really changed. And we did focus groups. I mean, again, this is New Mexico. It's a more democratic state, a more Hispanic state. It's a poor state. But there's a lot of discussion of poverty 
and lack of job opportunity is the root of crime in, in Albuquerque and in, in New Mexico. And so when the ads are saying, you know, she's going to get you killed because she does fund police, that's like kind of people just don't believe it. Right. It's not plausible. And so, again, I don't think Democrats should be scared of the right on this. And I think in general, the, the, everyone has different, everyone's slightly different from each other, but most Democrats most electeds have that kind of middle of the road that, you know, what I call is protect and respect. And, you know, and, and so, and they, I think that they should be competent and not worry about the blowback. And the other thing I would just say is Democrats did run eyes on a crime uh, in 2022. And that's another thing that annoyed me so much about the commentary. Um, you know, I worked, you know, for a congressman Cartwright and Congresswoman Schreier and both those races, we ran multiple ads about police funding. Congressman Schreier did police ride-alongs. Uh, Mark Kelly ran at, you know, Mark Kelly's parents are cops. I mean, so the notion that Democrats didn't deal with crime in their campaigns is also not true. I think it's driven a lot, Anna, by the situation in New York, which New York always gets outsized attention because media is centered sure. in New York, but that those races became defined by and the governor's race defined as, as much by crime as anything else. Okay. And so as such... There we go. That's how that became sure. part of the narrative. I, I, and did you did you do any races in New York? I did. I did all of the um, for um, outside group. I didn't do any candidates, but I did, I did okay. all of those. So, races. what was your take on how crime impacted those races? So, I don't want to say it didn't, but what I will say is Long Island and upstate New York have been, but especially Long Island, have been moving Republican for a while. This wasn't just a new thing. So in 2021, for example, um, there were a lot of county exec races and those kinds of races. And it, people were paying so much attention to Virginia and New Jersey, and they didn't really say anything about New York. Democrats lost a lot in Long Island in 2021. Having worked in a lot of those districts in previous cycles, they're very tough. Long Island's more blue collar. Realize the Hamptons are a very small part of it. And so I think at least part of it is just it's just a Republican area. <laughs> you know what I mean? Fundamentally. And it's been moving that way for a long time. The one sort of caveat I would say is, you know, bail reform in New York was a big deal, eliminating cash bail. And we all know why. I know why I'm for eliminating cash bail, but there's no question that it was deeply unpopular, that there were kind of Willie Horton-esque kind of cases of people being released without bail who then went on to commit heinous crimes. And so it's certainly possible because of that, that crime was, you know, sort of elevated in New York. So I don't want to discount crime, but I do want to bring in that partisanship matters and a place that's been trending Republican anyway for years is going to be a tougher terrain for Democrats. I do, I would have to dig in more. I'd like to actually go back and see like what ads were run. But yes. it's a very expensive media market. Well, so that's another piece of it. There. That's right. Very few ads are run in New York. And to your point that you made earlier, which was just the emphasis uh, in certain states on abortion, you know, where that was, hot button issue, Arizona being one of those versus New York, where it wasn't yep. a topic because it's not an issue there. Uh, California, the same. So you saw huge drop off mm -hmm. in California and New York. And you do wonder, OK, run those ads, uh, run those campaigns in a quote unquote traditional turnout where you have, you know, sort of or presidential year turnout, let's call it, right. would they have the same effect? It's a really good we point. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, turnout was down in those places. And maybe Democrats just didn't come out because they're like, yeah, abortion is legal in New York. It's legal in New Jersey. It's legal in California. And they just didn't come out. So it's very easy for people, you know, for example, the mayor's race in Chicago. Crime. I'm sorry. Lori Lightfoot was unpopular all four years. It may be crime. I'm not saying it isn't. But like, understand what's actually happening in that city. She barely won the mayor election. She was the last person standing. It's literally the only reason she won. Every other person had a scandal. And so she was not a consensus choice. She was unpopular from day one. She was not a good mayor. And so, you know, she lost convincingly. And like, it's crime. Democrats have a problem. <laughs> one of my favorite things about these interviews is the chance to ask a few fun questions of my guests. Here's Anna. All right. So this is a question we are asking all of our guests, which is the first elected official you met and interacted personally with. Well, I don't remember because I probably met people quite young, given mm. my parents' careers. <laughs> but the first one I really remember interacting with was Chris Dodd in 1980. He was, I'm old. He was a congressman from the second CD, which is kind of coastal uh, eastern Connecticut. And he was running for Senate. And my stepmother was his campaign manager. And so perfect. there was a story that we heard them talking about Chris Dodd, who was going to come over to our house. And my sister thought they said Chris died. So we're all wondering, like, who died? Who's Chris? And, and how did he die? Who's Chris? <laughs> is he dead? Um, it turns out it was Chris Dodd and he was very much alive uh, and he was elected to the U.S. Senate. And um, so that's probably and he's what he's a wonderful, wonderful person who I've known for a very long time. And so that's probably the first person I politician I really interacted with. Uh, the other question we like to ask folks, especially those in the world of political consulting, since Ooh. this is called the odd years, the theory being that there are, you know, even years where you have political elections in odd years where you don't. Um, and the theory was, at least in the old days, that you got to relax in the odd year and the off year and it was quieter. First, is that the case for you? And if so, what do you like to do with all of your free time? And if not, why not? So it is slower, but it's not slow. And one, there are elections in the odd years. So I'm working in New Jersey and mayor's races. So I actually have elections in November <laughs> in primaries and all that sort of stuff. So I have elections, but it's certainly slower, much, much less work. But on the other hand, you spend an enormous amount of time being stressed that nobody is ever going to hire you again. And so trying to find business, you lots of lunches and drinks and coffees, lots of calling what you hear and who's going to run. Um, and so there's like the kind of anxiety takes up a lot of time in the odd year. Right. So um, this is so, not, oh, I have some free time. Let's go to Europe. No. And, right. It is. I need X I need clients. Exactly. To, in order to, to pay the bills. Yes. To pay my staff, I need X number of clients in 2024. And I will get by by the skin of my teeth in the odd year and then make all the money in the odd year and the on year. So, yes, we so there's a lot of anxiety. Now, I will say that I have taken up hiking. But the other thing that I have been doing, which my husband thinks I'm crazy, is I feel like I spend too much time on my phone while I'm watching TV and not paying attention to the show and not really chilling out. So now I'm doing needlepoint while I watch my shows. 
So you're basically 87 old. years old. Very old. I know, because 1980 is my first politician. <laughs> well, you know? you, so, um, do you have anything to share about your needle? Any needle really points? My index finger. Yeah, oh. the needle, like, so I got to find a thimble. That's my, I gotta, oh, that's I gotta, very gotta good. thimble uh, of Amazon. Are you so. making, um, are you making pillows? Are you <laughs> making coasters? What are, What are you making and are you sharing I them? I bought a very cheap three pack off Amazon to start because I didn't know how to do it. And I figured I'll do some where I mess it up. And then if I actually am okay at it, then I can figure something else out to do. So they're just, they're just flowers, you know, wildflowers. So now are, and then the final one, are you, binging a show currently or if not what was your last okay favorite binge i'm always binging shows not not otherwise um and i will also reveal along with my needle point that i mostly watch british procedurals and i'm on a oh facebook page that's my mom that's for people who watch british shows so yeah i am 800 years old so um, i mean literally I just, my mom is 82 years old and i just finished i just well. finished all 12 se- seasons of Vera. Okay, I'll have I to ask recommend. about that. I'm sure she has already watched it. Line of Duty, I've already finished. There's yes, there's there's unlimited numbers of British procedurals do, out do there. Do you watch those together, or you watch that alone? Is I watch more TV than my husband, so mm-hmm. I watch. We always have two shows: one that we're watching together, and then one I'm watching on my own. And I tend to do a lot of those British procedurals by myself. I got it. We all we need our private time, and mm-hmm. these devices are great that you can be in the same mm-hmm. house. Are you ever, this happens in our household, there's usually one show that all three of us will be watching. But um, for the most part, if you walked around our house, you would find three yes. different people watching three different things. That, that, Same. Yes, there's there's four of us and sometimes five, but my stepdaughter's in college now, but sometimes it's five. We did all watch The Mandalorian together. I love Same. It, and I can't wait to watch the second season. And, and Baby Yoda is my favorite. And Baby Yoda, uh, have you started it yet? No, don't tell okay. me anything. Well, just Baby Yoda continues to be adorable. I well, will say I, that. that'll make me. I mean, even happy. more adorable than normal. <laughs> so that will be great. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. Appreciate you taking all this time, Anna, to talk about through this with me. It's been a lot of fun. And we still have so many unknowns yet to uncover. So I look forward unknown to Unknown unknowns. Unknown unknowns and known unknowns <laughs> to uncover. So. I look forward to doing that with you soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Bye. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking with the one and only Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour. Be sure to follow The Odd Years on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, and if you're a Cook Political Report subscriber, check out our exclusive bonus content at cookpolitical.com. See you next time on The Odd Years.